0: In the middle of a pandemic, two months sitting around, I ordered a new pair of pants online. But instead of the pants I ordered, they send me a shirt. So I called the company, asking them to please send me the pants. Man says, well, for first, you need to fill out a form and take the shirt to the approved drop-off location. And this, this, and that before we can send you out the merchandise. I'm like, hey, hey, hey. Come get your stuff if you want to. But I'm not doing chores. Either send me what I ordered or give me a refund. Well, it's against company policy. It's against my policy to keep having this conversation. Let me speak to the manager. And now it's some other dude. And maybe the same dude using a different voice. Talking about the pants policy of the company. The back and forth. Back and forth with these people in this loop. And we've all been there. Where the situation is broken. And while there's an obvious solution, those involved either can't or won't take responsibility for achieving it. But what if someone does want to step up, does want to make things a tiny bit better, and not just take the blame, but the responsibility for a situation that's far more pressing than a pair of pants? on Snap are taking a trip to Afghanistan, Snap Judgment proudly presents the handoff. I know it's in Washington. Please send everyone out of the room or keep everyone in the room quiet, but make sure they're not bothering you for the next hour because you're listening to Snap Judgment. Begin with Devin Ravel. He's 25 years old, fresh out of college, and becomes a Marine platoon commander. And is sent off to his first assignment, the Southern Green Zone, the Sangin District of Afghanistan. And yes, because of the nature of the conflict, our story does contain some graphic imagery. Producer Shana Sheely takes it from here. Snap Judgment.
1: It was 2012, a decade into the war with Afghanistan, when Devon landed in a lush agricultural area along the Helmand River.
2: The nighttime was like this cool, still night air, and it was really peaceful to some degree and it, you know, it had like that fresh rural smell to it. But it really was kind of the hotbed of Taliban activity.
1: In his first few days there, Devon shadowed a platoon commander that he would eventually replace. The commander invited Devin on his last mission.
2: It was not like just an invite. It was like, hey, you're coming because you're going to be the one in charge of this stuff by, you know, within the next 48 hours.
1: The mission was to take place that evening.
2: What? We do night missions? Like, I I thought that we didn't do night missions because it was too dangerous. He's like, no, we're going to partner, we're going to go to the Afghan patrol base at PB Hanjar.
1: The Marines had Afghan counterparts who knew the territory.
2: There's a a phrase in, in Dari local language, it's Shona Bashona, which means shoulder-to-shoulder, shoulder. and that was sort of the the theme of that deployment. It's always going to be shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with our Afghan partners. They're going to lead this mission, and we're just going to provide support.
1: Shona Bashona. Devin and his guys geared up for the night and left base with a team of Afghan soldiers. The Afghan commander directed the mission.
2: I, I think he must have been in his mid-20s, I guess? Clean-shaven about 5'8", pretty skinny. He kept his sleeves rolled up. He had his map out, and he was doing a phenomenal job of saying, like, here's the compound that we're going to, here's who's going to go first. He definitely moved quickly. He definitely moved with a sense of purpose, and that was the most impressive part. Like, he was pretty calm, and he'd ask people to do things quietly, and what surprised me is, like, people sprung into action. He didn't have to like bark orders. Like people just, they moved fast for him. The other Marines that that we were replacing, they basically told us, they're like, hey, this is your guy.
1: The Marine introduced Mirza, the Afghan soldier, as a lifeline.
2: Like you have no idea how good he is at his job, but also how much he cares about this mission and and how much he cares about working with us.
1: Mirza is a nickname, by the way. Devin reached his hand out to him.
2: You put your hand on that person's heart, and they'll put their their hand on your heart. That's like the traditional greeting. I sense that, like, all right, at least I didn't get the feeling that these were going to be the ones that were going to kill us in our sleep. Although, side note, I I still slept with uh, my sidearm, my pistol, with me every single night, just you know, just in case.
1: The year Devin served in Afghanistan around 50 American soldiers had been killed by Afghan security forces.
2: That year was notorious for Afghan forces flipping on Americans and having all these violent incidents. A lot of Marines, they'd be like, screw those Afghan soldiers.
1: But some Americans said the US hadn't done enough to build trust with Afghans, or properly equip and train the Afghan army. More Afghan soldiers have been killed than US and NATO troops, 17 times more. There were lots of mornings during Devin's deployment when Devin would go down to patrol base Hanjar for a check-in with Mirza, and Mirza would get out his electric tea kettle and make green tea for both of them to share.
2: And, you know, barely speaking English, you would say things like, like, are you good, sir? You know, double good, double good. And when it came time to like sitting around a large map and planning things out. He would ask questions, he would reiterate things in his language in Dari. We're we're going here and then this this team is gonna move up. He was giving us his opinions on things and it was all, he was just very, very relaxed, like really easy to work with.
1: About halfway through his deployment in June, Devin's platoon was patrolling in a village in the middle of the night where they'd heard there was Taliban activity. Devin had split his platoon into squads. He went with one and sent another to a hilltop, overlooking this tiny town. Once everyone was in position, Devin went back to the command center. He ate a prepackaged dinner and changed into a t-shirt and shorts.
2: Like tiny little uh, gym shorts, basically, and flip-flops. And um, I was checking some of my like work emails, so I hear like, You know, third squads getting ready to come back, and they had just departed from their observation post.
1: Sitting there in the command center with his men on their way back, he felt a blast.
2: And um I you know, like the walls shook. Uh like a few minutes after that. You could clearly tell there was an explosion. I was like, oh my god, that was them. Like, what the hell had just happened?
1: Still in his flip-flops. Devin ran to the Combat Operations Center.
2: The COC is basically a room with a bunch of TV screens, monitors, computers, and people wearing the headsets with the radios.
1: Up on the screen was footage from a night vision camera attached to a high-altitude blimp.
2: On the screen, you know, it's the gray infrared camera, but I could see the outlines of the Marines, like the heat signature and... The Marines that were in there, uh, they're like, "Yep, third squad got hit." A
1: Marine, Brad, had stepped on an IED, and it blew his legs off.
2: There were no other units immediately close to them to give them support, so it was just twelve guys that were out there, and we're all watching this unfold. You know, everyone's like on the radio, trying to you know make sure other units are aware, and but our hands are tied. It's not like we can run out there and do anything. Like these guys have to get their way back to base. And um, as uh, Doc Crowley was putting putting tourniquets on Brad, one of the other Marines, Corporal uh, T.J. Bounty, um, he was kneeling to basically provide security because we were expecting an ambush to come from the village.
1: Devin stood there watching the screen as Doc Crowley tended to Brad, while another one of his Marines, T.J., provided coverage, and then. Another blast.
2: Like literally before my eyes.
1: Devin saw the screen fill with billows of smoke.
2: And when the dust settled, you could just see people and like body parts everywhere. It was like horrifying. An IED did go off, and now a second one went off. Brad, he had taken shrapnel. TJ, uh, Corporal uh, TJ Bounty, he took fragmentation to the skull and wasn't moving. Our interpreter, Kasimi, he had massive amounts of shrapnel all over his body. It was, you know, it was evident that T.J. was dead. It was just like the worst situation a platoon commander could imagine.
1: Devin went to the site of the explosion the next morning as the sun rose.
2: We recovered, uh, I think it was T.J.'s helmet. Um, I think we recovered, I don't know if it was Chris or Brad's boots. Uh, it was not just boots.
1: The rest of the day was kind of a blur.
2: It, it, it kind of was like a nauseous feeling that wouldn't go away for like, I don't know, long, long time.
1: Devin couldn't eat. He couldn't sleep. He had to announce to the rest of the platoon that their friend had died.
2: I remember Mirza just kind of watching me. His eyebrow was kind of fur- furrowed, and he apologized that that this happened in, you know, he considered it his area of operation. like th- we, yes, it was shared between us, but um, he basically had re- he felt like he was responsible for everything that happened in that area. He spoke about it in a way like he had lost one of his own soldiers.
1: Later that evening, when Devin and Mirza were both in the control room, Mirza took devin's hand and kind of pulled him in for a hug.
2: I call it like the dude hug where you shake somebody's hand and you know you you throw your your other hand pat pat the pat him on the back kind of thing. I guess it's as vulnerable as men can get about their uh their hugability and emotions and I wasn't expecting that from him
1: he apologized again
2: like there, his voice was like quivering like you could sense that he was trying to prevent himself from getting choked up about it. And that was surprising to me because in my mind, this guy's seen so many of his own soldiers get killed. He's seen so many Marines get killed. Like, he's still not callous to it. Then he kind of, you know, he just kind of motioned, like a uh, how you'd motion, like eating food out of a plate. And he said, you come, you know, um, and he pointed to his guys and then sort of put his hands together, interlocking. And I brought my interpreter over and he's like, yeah, Mirza's saying that we should all eat together tonight because you guys, you guys went through something terrible.
1: Devin was hesitant to say yes to the dinner invitation. His Marines almost never visited the Afghan living quarters. The two groups didn't hang out or eat together. It wasn't protocol.
2: You don't know if you're going to get food poisoning or, you know, what if what if an Afghan soldier poisons the chicken or something like that? Like, there's, there's risk involved with it.
1: But he also wanted to show Mirza that his Marines were warming up to Mirza's soldiers and that they were grateful.
2: Uh, aside from just being a wonderful gesture, it was also just like, wow, we get something to eat tonight.
1: The Afghan base was like a different world for the Marines.
2: So the, the kitchen area was just another one of those mud huts. There was no electricity in there, and the light came from the cooking fire. These big cooking fire that you know they were cooking for uh, however many two dozen guys that Mirza had. You could smell like the fresh rice. The bread was amazing. That's the, the flat bread in, in that part of Afghanistan. They call it Dode. They had some kind of like lamb or goat soup, so tomatoes, onions, uh, very savory kind of aromas just wafting around. It was, it was, um, everything about it was warm. We went to one of the rooms. They have rugs and, and these larger pillows on the ground. And everyone just kind of sits around on the floor in a circle and passes the food around. You take the dode bread And you grab a piece of that bread, wrap it around the chunk of the the lamb or the goat, especially that fatty part, and then you dip it in the soup. It's like this brothy kind of like vegetable, tomato kind of vegetable soup. And you just pop that in your mouth and it's just like phenomenal.
1: The Afghan soldiers and the Marines exchanged swear words in each other's languages. They told inappropriate jokes and tried talking about soccer
2: inevitably, at some point, either party would run out of words that the other one knew, so then you would get like an awkward silence and then and then somebody else would kind of try to start another conversation. A, a bunch of the Afghan soldiers and Mirza said things like, like, don't worry, we're gonna get them back. like we'll we'll help you in however way we can. From here on out, we're we're in this together. We both sides, treat this as, like, a you know, a closer working relationship.
1: The next day started as usual. The men returned to their routines, but as they went out, things felt different. The soldiers and Marines were making plans together.
2: This was sort of a turning point for me. I would sit down with Mirza, and we would plan these missions together, and we would have more in-depth dialogue about who would take the lead, which soldiers they were bringing, which squad that I would be taking out. It just felt way more cohesive.
0: We're gonna stop for some soup and warm bread, but our story continues in just a moment. Stay tuned. back to Snap Judgment, the handoff episode. And again, because of the nature of our story, this piece does use graphic imagery. We left off with Devin and his Marines sharing warm Afghani soup with Afghan soldiers. Snap Judgment.
2: The Marines started playing soccer with their soldiers. At one point, we're like, oh, we're sick of MREs. So I went and talked to one of Mirza's guys, and I brought the interpreter with us, (laughs) we're like, hey, is there a way that we can just, like, give you guys some American dollars and we get food? And, and they're like, yeah, like, they're, we'll talk to the local farmers. So, like, we bought a bunch of chickens and vegetables. And, like, people were like, hey, how come you guys aren't needing resupply? Like, according to the calculations, you should be get, needing more food. I'm like, oh, yeah. I mean, we have kind of our own way of doing things. And there was – you could start to see uh, – Non-verbal friendships start to form.
1: Devin's deployment was just seven months. Summer turned to fall, and he and his Marines started to pack their bags. It was time to go home to California.
2: The sister unit of ours replaced us.
1: When the new commanders showed up, Devin gave them the lay of the land. And then he brought them down to patrol base Hanjar
2: and said, you know, this is, this is a really important strategic part of the area. It's like the last stop before Taliban land, and this Afghan army unit is actually really good to work with. You can trust them. They're good, and this is Mirza. He, he runs the show here. Standing next to him, and my, my arm was around his shoulder. Like, this is, like, he's your guy. Like, like this is your man. <laughs> Lean on him. Take care of him, and he'll take care of you. We, we definitely, we definitely did, did a dude hug after that.
1: Then Mirza shook the new commander's hand the exact same way he had shaken Devin's hand. And Devin had a sort of grim realization.
2: They don't fly back and go to football games when this is all over. Like, this is their life. Are they going to, like, no human can possibly keep doing this for years on end. Like, this, this has got to come to a breaking point. I don't do a lot of military-related stuff anymore. Um, Most of the people I hang out with are not military, so I would say a lot has changed.
1: Devin's last day of active duty was about a year after he returned from his deployment, on January 1st, 2014. He tried putting the war behind him, not really talking about it much. But then, last summer, while Devin was working from home, he heard a ding on his phone. A message on WhatsApp.
2: Gosh, uh, actually, let me let me pull up my WhatsApp on my phone. Um, yeah, June eighteenth, June eighteenth. Oh my gosh, I get a, a message. Hi, my dear friend, and it's it's like hello. Who is this? And he sends a photograph of him in uniform with a bunch of other soldiers. I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is this is Mirza.
1: Before leaving Afghanistan. Devin had scribbled something down on a piece of paper and given it to Mirza.
3: Devin uh, gave me his number
4: in a small paper, like a, in capacity of a phone number. In a small um, paper, keep kept that one in my valid, money. Valid. Hello?
1: Mirza's in Kabul. The internet cuts out a lot.
4: Hi, Shaina. Hi. So I just um, had a refresh the net, so it's good now, so we can. Um, we
1: a friend here. is translating for him. I translated for
4: Meza. Uh, say, Honestly, I lost it. That I say wallet and
1: his. lost his wallet, and then uh, about, eight years later, he was rearranging his room.
4: Uh, fall back of my um, desk. So then we found it. Mm -hmm. He said that only um, um, Devin gave me his number, so when he gave me his number, so I put in my wallet. So then I uh, called on a WhatsApp for for Devin. Then a first call, he uh, he knows me that I'm Merzah.
2: There was a part of me that's like, why is he hitting me up almost you know nine and a half years later?
3: The only uh, purpose was
4: just to ask him how he is, how is his life now? Is he still in army or he left? The only for as a friendly purpose to greet
2: him. And he's asking me questions. How's the family? I told him I just got married, sent him a picture. And he sends me a picture of he's got a young son and sends me the, uh, the emoji of a family.
1: Devin and Mirza had more back and forth. Mirza had moved to Kabul— Devin to Charlotte. Mirza was working as a shopkeeper, Devin as a manager at a tech company.
2: It was like sort of warm-hearted reconnecting. July comes around.
1: Devin turned on the TV and watched the White House statement about pulling American troops out of Afghanistan.
0: Is the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan now inevitable? No, it is not. Because you have the Afghan troops have three
2: In my head, I'm like, if the Taliban's getting momentum the way they are, it's like, this country is about to implode.
4: My wife was constantly asking me about, like, if they found you, what they will do with you because of my um, background of military. And, and also if they found that you will save 100% sure that they will kill me
1: the Taliban was hunting down anyone who had worked with the U.S. government. So in July, Mirza took his family into hiding.
2: Uh, I'm, I'm actually looking at it right now um, at my phone and going back to like early July. And he's like, hey, you know, sort of gently asking, what's the visa process? Is it possible for former Afghan army to, to apply? And I said, ah, I don't think so. Why do you ask? And he's like, well things aren't getting good.
1: And that's when Mirza... Asked Devin for help. When, uh,
4: when I called for, uh, for Devin for help, uh, the first thing is say, I asked him for a paper.
1: Paperwork for asylum status, paperwork to get him a job as a guard at the U.S. Embassy, anything that could help Mirza and his family get out of Afghanistan.
2: You know, fast forward to. Um, uh, to August, then it starts to get frantic. I'm like, uh, he's asking, "Hey, I'm, I'm, can we, can we get on a list? We heard that there's a list to get people out." And I said, "Let me look into this."
1: August, the Afghan president flees, the government collapses, and the Taliban takes over. Citizens storm the airport in Kabul, doing whatever they can to get out.
4: I'm sure that if they
2: find me, they will kill me.
4: Mirza
1: was desperate to get on a flight out of the country.
2: That's when I basically was like, I have a choice to either shut myself off from this or I can get involved. I'm like, crap, I'm going to help Mirza and just provide as many updates as possible.
1: Hundreds of other Marines, soldiers, aid workers... We're getting calls from old friends in Afghanistan. Devin had heard from another vet about an online group where some of these people gathered to help coordinate escape plans for Afghans. The group was called Digital Dunkirk, named after World War II Operation Dunkirk to evacuate Allied forces from a doomed French port.
2: It was literally like task force of Hundreds of people. They
1: used Slack, WhatsApp, Signal.
2: You had to be invited into these groups. Nobody used real names.
1: They came up with code names to protect themselves from getting in trouble with the U.S. government for breaking operational security protocol.
2: People created Slack channels and subchannels like... Uh, EVAC routes or high-priority lists of getting people out.
1: They posted resources, how to fill out the right paperwork for the right kind of visas for Afghans.
2: You know, I was supposed to get this contact out of the country, and I'm on the phone with them right now. All
1: of this back and forth is unfolding in real time.
2: They're in a bus, and that bus is stopped by the Taliban, and they're pulling people off the bus and putting bags over their head. Oh my god, my guy just told me he had to hang up, never to be heard from again.
1: Vets in the U.S. beaming information to Afghans trying to get out of Afghanistan alive.
2: Word got out that the Taliban's running around Kabul, knocking on people's doors, asking them to scan their fingerprints and very clearly popping up like, oh, you were a high government, high ranking government official or you were a high ranking commander in the army. Guess what? We're going to execute you on the street to make a point.
0: Devin, get Mirza out of Taliban territory. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the handoff episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and when last we left, Devin had joined an online task force of hundreds of people gathered to help coordinate escape plans. For Afghans, he sent Mirza safety information directly. Snap judgment.
1: Back in Kabul, Mirza was with his family in hiding, glued to his phone, waiting for Devin to ping him with
4: these updates.
3: Even uh, at
4: 4 o'clock in the morning when I woke up, I was looking for the phone that uh, I was waiting that uh, what Devin sent me. What Devin sent me, and so every time, consistently, I was checking with my phone.
1: At the same time, thousands of miles away, Devin was sitting at his desk in North Carolina with dozens of tabs open. Maps, Slack, WhatsApp.
2: Gosh, at one point, I probably had like 20 or 30 tabs open on my browser. I just, I just couldn't do my work meetings. <laughs>
1: He took a week off to rearrange his work from home desk into a sort of Afghan operations center. He was fielding updates about safe paths to the airport, where Taliban sympathizers were setting up checkpoints, and how they were outing former soldiers and interpreters.
2: I feel like I have a commitment to Mirza and his family.
1: Devin relayed safety information to Mirza.
2: Saying, like, don't don't go to these checkpoints if you see... Clusters of people avoid it because if, if they capture you or they catch you on the street, they're going to do your iris scanner, your fingerprint. You're going to show up as a with your name, and you're screwed. Um, he would kind of, like, say, hey, like, it's not, it's getting increasingly unsafe.
4: Because of the, the Taliban, obviously, personally, I was very afraid
2: so I was in hourly contact with Mirza. I would ask him, like, where's the rest of your family? Is there a road called this name and this name at this intersection? And he's like, yeah, that's like, you know, that's like six blocks away and it's it's on the way to the market. I'm like, okay, I got information that Taliban have a secret checkpoint there. So if you go there, they might ask you to do like the fingerprint scan. So don't go there. Say, like, okay, good to know.
3: Tall and deja and kafaloni the, the only thing b- w- I was yeah. doing on that time so checking
4: the phone and just like mm-hmm. going from kitchen to room and from room to kitchen and just uh, uh, looking for the phone every time in WhatsApp I was waiting that what uh, Devin exactly telling me like where I should go and just uh, check the phones, can't sleep so just say that everything was in my phone so there was, I was just waiting what update what given me uh, from uh, Devin
2: There was another update. He's like, yeah, I just temporarily moved a couple houses down and we're hiding in a neighbor's house because we we heard the Taliban were going door to door to see who's living where. So I was like, okay, delete delete the text history. Delete my number. Hide any documentation that shows that you had affiliation with Americans. If they come to your door, um, take any of your certificates or your ID cards from your military time. Um, I know this is super uncomfortable, but you need to like have your wife hide it in her undergarments. I had him change my name to a fake Afghan name in his phone. I was doing almost secret check-ins, like, just give me, like, one word, yes or no, are you okay?
1: As his phone constantly dinged with updates, Devin was also helping Mirza get a visa application together. He rallied support letters from former commanders all over the U.S. who had worked with Mirza.
2: He's, like, so instrumental. Uh, to the success of of Marines that were in Sangin, he's got recommendation letters from people who are who are lieutenant colonels and maybe even higher ranking, you know, military officials. That's got to have some weight to it.
1: Devin was hopeful, but then he realized that since Mirza hadn't ever officially been contracted by the U.S. like many interpreters had been, he wasn't eligible for a special immigration visa. Devin broke this news to Mirza on August nineteenth.
2: I'll read you verbatim. I said, thank you for this information. Right now I have very little information for you. I know that the government's making a list of people that help the US, and there's three priorities. One, US citizens. There's still a lot of US citizens stuck. Second priority is approved SIV, so special immigration visa, so interpreters, and then three, others who need help that had affiliation.
3: I was very upset and when I
4: heard that uh, they even say the process is not fast, it's getting slow, and uh, you see I hope that I should go and team flood with my friends from Afghanistan, but it's not happening.
2: He's like, thank you. Um, but also, you can see like you know the next day, like any updates, any updates, dude you got to be patient.
3: I was very uh, upset and nothing I can do. It's only I'm
4: waiting to, still I'm waiting to hear good news.
1: Devin's only hope was to get Mirza on a list for a P-2 visa, a special category the U.S. made for Afghans whose work was adjacent to the U.S. military and their families. Many hundreds of thousands of Afghans fit into this category. Devin went back to his contacts.
2: I tracked down my old commander, got him to write a recommendation letter, found other Marines that had worked with Mirza before me, got photocopies of awards that had been given to Mirza.
1: Devin wasn't just trying to help Mirza. He was trying to get Mirza's entire family out of Afghanistan.
2: Mirza, need this information ASAP. Need your wife's name and her Tuskira number, your son's name, and your Tuskira number, and what city are you in? And then he sends me this information back. My my wife and kids don't have Tuskira or passports because they originally lived in a smaller village and they didn't have the facilities to even have ID cards.
1: Soon, other people got word that Devin was helping.
2: I think I got like... 20 or 30 different WhatsApp messages from random people saying, like, I heard you can help us. And I'm like, no, I can't. Like, where's your paperwork at? Are you an interpreter? Where's your paperwork at today? And they're like, it's at this stage. I'm like, then you're fine. There's nothing more that I can do. Or there were certain people where I'm like, all right, I will help you put your package in. I'll get you on the list.
1: Devin was working on five or six packages at a time, all the while keeping tabs on Mirza.
2: So there was like a week where I didn't sleep I was getting, I was like catching up on group chat at like 2 a.m., 3 a.m. Sleep for a few hours, get back to the computer, and there were there were periods of time where I realized I hadn't eaten. Um, my wife thought I was. She's like, "Are you okay? Like, you don't look so good."
1: Mirza finally got ID cards made for his family. Devin submitted the paperwork.
2: And, drafted up, I think, a pretty awesome package to the State Department to get his process started for essentially like an asylum visa. And I told him, I was like, dude, I don't know what's gonna happen. We just have to sit tight.
1: September turned to October, turned to November.
4: It's a long time, uh, uh, he didn't receive any update or he didn't receive any call or uh, text from
2: embassy.
1: Devin still couldn't get his mind off Mirza and his family.
2: He sent me a Merry Christmas message. I'm like, yeah, I still don't have anything for you.
1: On Slack, Devin kept seeing success stories posted of Afghans who were pulled out of Taliban territory.
2: You know, thousands of of Afghans were saved. And there's victory associated with that. There were people that were in the group chat and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so relieved I got my guy over, or I got this family over, and then you'd see them, like, leave the chat, and it's like, that's awesome, I'm genuinely happy for you, but, like, I'm stuck here. I I worry about stuff, like, oh, is he not responding to his WhatsApp?
1: Mirza is back in his own home now. He doesn't go outside much, not even to go get food, or to go to a park with his kids. Life under the Taliban is still uncertain mirza still fears for his life and is still waiting for the next whatsapp message from devin so when devin was in afghanistan his life was basically in your hands like you were the one who was helping him and and telling him what to do and then 8 years passed and now all of a sudden your life is in devin's hands
3: America.
4: Uh, he say yes, <laughs> definitely. Because um, say on that time when Devin was in Afghanistan, uh, in the mission with us, so, uh, I did my best. I did my best with him. And he said, now, yes, I don't know anyone from other Americans because I, I'm not in contact with them. Uh, now, my last chance is, he said, Devin, I hope that he can take me out from Afghanistan.
1: After weeks of unanswered emails, Devin started asking friends who work in immigration law about the P-2 visa process.
2: Somebody contacted me and they're like, dude, the whole P-2 visa, the one that Mirza would qualify for, like, it was such lip service from the State Department. That process is completely stalled. This is, like, this is so impossible. Like, I don't, I don't know what to do. And and I, like, it did cross my mind. <laughs> Can I send him a, a WhatsApp message mean like, hey, like... We suck, and I can't help you.
1: Have you lost hope in the American system?
3: Yes, because say, the,
4: the process is very slow
3: now.
1: Have you lost hope in Devon?
3: No, I made it's <laughs> come, coming to Devon. Uh, I said
4: no, uh, no, no because still I hope from uh, Devin because he's my friend best friend, you know, military friends say eh? when you are uh, military friends is different from other things, because when you are friends in the military, out from the uh, say from the, your checkpoints going for a patrol or something it's hundred uh, percent dangerous you will feel. you know hundred percent there's a danger like a, a dangerous of ambush. Sometimes it's happening when you are um, wounded or someone's dead. That's the place you are. This is your friend, military friend, that will help you to save
3: your life. I'm to go to the hospital. I'm going
0: Since the U.S. left Afghanistan last summer, only a tiny percentage of Afghans who worked alongside the American government risking their lives for Americans have been relocated. Less than 3%. The State Department estimates that between 70 and 160,000 of these Afghans are stranded in Taliban territory, struggling under increasingly desperate circumstances. Many thanks to Devin Ravel and Mirza for sharing their stories. Mirza is a nickname, by the way. Special thanks to Mary Mathis and Sarah Delia. The original score for this piece was by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Shana Sheely. In today's bifurcated world the one thing we can all share is story and your friend the one who doesn't even know what a podcast is that friend needs you right now more than ever you can help them by taking their phone and their ears and introducing them to the world of snap judgment storytelling hours of amazing journeys on the snap judgment podcast available right now for free each one help one before the dark lord rises again snap judgment snap is brought to you by the team that will always eat afghani soup as it is meant to be eaten with warm bread except for the uber producer miss mark wristage always steady asking if anybody got any crackers nancy lopez pat Masini miller gina bariaco david exme anna sussman renzo gorio jayna shealy Tail the Flo Wiley, John Fasil, Melissa Dodge, Davy Kim, Bo Walsh, and Andy Nguyen. And this is not the news. No way is this news. In fact, you could ask the guy to give you the thing. You mean this thing? No, the other thing. Well, I haven't got the other thing. Well, you better go get the other thing. And even as you're arguing, you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PRX.